Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Um, good morning. Welcome. Great to see you here uh, at Thurfield Chapel. Greetings if you're watching online. Uh, if you don't know already, my name's Paul. Uh, I serve as part of the leadership team here as one of the elders and pastor at Thurfield Chapel. Um, do keep uh, your Bibles open or your journals as we're going to work through this passage. Actually, we ended up starting, uh, finishing just... Uh, a little short of, of where we're going today. Let me just read those last few verses. Uh, do you want to bring that up, Seth? That's all right. Um, verse 33 uh, of Luke 11. Jesus goes on to say, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see uh, the light of your word uh, this morning as we spend time now uh, meditating, thinking on, on what we've heard. Lord, reveal to us, uh, make clear to us uh, the light of your glory revealed in Christ, that uh, that light may shine on uh, and in us, we pray. Amen. Uh, So what is it that you uh, enjoy watching? As human beings, we've always enjoyed spectacle throughout throughout the ages. We live at a period of time where the options of things that we can watch are innumerable. We don't even need to leave our living room uh, to watch many things. So whether that is uh, rugby or football or cricket, uh, whether it's the traitors, gladiators, the masked singer... The Great British Bake Off, The Sewing Bee, The Great Pottery Throwdown. I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, But we've got all these shows we can watch. We can see the experience of others. Sometimes we're impressed. Other times maybe we watch that a bit critically. But even so, we we kind of enjoy that experience of, of watching others. But we know that we are watching from the sidelines. We're not participating. We're not experiencing that. We're merely spectators. But what if we could be involved? Now, rather than just being spectators, that we could participate uh, in those things that we enjoy watching. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you're watching that program on TV and whether it's your favorite sports person, presenter, contestant, if, if they reached out to you into your living room, And they invited you in and and they said, don't just be a spectator. Don't just watch this. You can come and you can experience with me that very same thing that you're watching. But you can now experience it as a participant. That could be quite a fun thing. And yet what we are offered is so much better than that. Because it is the God of the universe, the author of life, the one in whom there is life, the fullness of life, who calls us to be participants, to be sharers 
uh, in his life and his experience. We're not merely to be these observers. And in our passage this morning, that's what Jesus does. He extends this invitation out. It says to the crowds, those who are observing, those who are watching, don't just be mere observers. Come. Come and be these participants. And Jesus' invitation to them, to us, is to come and share in the life of the kingdom. Share in the life of God. Now we're continuing our series in Luke's gospel and this gospel written to demonstrate how Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all God's plans and God's promises. And from the very beginning, his purpose has been the blessing of his presence extends over the whole earth. And these last few weeks, we've been considering some of the theme of dependency, our dependency upon God. We're not self-sufficient. We're not self-sustaining beings. We're dependent. But that dependency isn't something that's oppressive. It's life-giving and it's liberating. This isn't the dependency that is cultivated by an abuser who's trying to enslave their victim. This is the dependency that comes from the generous host who lavishly and freely provides everything that is needed. Now, in our passage this morning, we come across a number of phrases and sayings of Jesus that might be familiar to us from other Gospels. Jesus will at times use and reuse the same saying or the same illustration and kind of puts a slightly different slant on it or focuses in on a slightly different area to draw out a particular point. And so what we need to be asking, regardless of how familiar maybe some of these phrases might seem to us, what is the point Jesus is making here in this context? What is the occasion? What is Jesus seeking to draw out? Well, the occasion we see uh, here in verse 14. Have a look uh, at verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So Jesus has just freed this man from demonic oppression. The crowd is watching and we're told of these three responses. So in verse 14, uh, we have those who are amazed. In verse 15, we've got those who are hostile towards Jesus. And they say it's because he's in league with Beelzebul. We'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, And verse 16, there are others who are somewhat unconvinced. Uh, And they're looking for a sign. They're they're looking for kind of more evidence. They're testing Jesus. Three different reactions here. Which of these do you most relate to? These three different reactions. And yet the thing is, Jesus isn't looking for a, a right reaction. He's looking for a right response. And as we'll see, Jesus doesn't want us to be good spectators, but he wants us to participate in his goodness. So as we go through this passage, there are two questions uh, that we're considering, uh, and they are, are you for the light, and are you full of light? So the first one, are you for the light? Uh, Have a look with me then at verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so this is Jesus' response to this accusation that's leveled against him in verse 15, where some people are saying it's by Beelzebul, uh, the prince of demons, that he is driving out demons. Now, the exact meaning uh, and origin of that word Beelzebul is somewhat debated, but it was a title that came to be used of Satan as a prince of demons. And so some people are saying Jesus is in league with the devil. He's in partnership with Satan, and that's how he's driving out these demons. And Jesus begins by saying, look, that just makes no sense, does it? Why is, why is Satan going to be destroying his own kingdom? Logically, it makes no sense. You're saying that what I'm doing, it's a sign that I'm in league with the devil? Well, surely what I'm doing, isn't it clear that this is a sign of God's kingdom breaking in, that Jesus is one who is at war with, with the works of the devil, the one who is bringing liberation and freedom from oppression. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. And Jesus says, this is what he is doing. He is the stronger man who is opposing the strong man. In this case, Satan. The stronger man opposing, attacking the strong man. And this, this is something that happens throughout history. Kings wage war against kings, nations against nations. Uh, and invariably what happens is one oppressor is replaced by another oppressor. And that happened in the Jewish history. They had the Babylonians, and then they were replaced by the Greeks, and you get the Seleucid Empire, and then you get the Romans, and it's just oppression after oppression after oppression. But notice the difference here. The stronger man attacks the strong man. He takes away the armor uh, in which he trusted, and then what does he do? He doesn't take the plunder and hoard it to himself. He divides up the plunder. He takes what has been stolen and he gives it back. See, this, this isn't someone who's coming in to become another oppressor. This is someone who restores. And this is what Jesus is doing. It's what he's done here in verse 14. This man who was oppressed by demonic forces. And Jesus comes and he doesn't just drive this demon out and goes, right, now this guy is my plaything and I'm going to oppress him. What's he do? He restores what was stolen. And in this case, it was the man's speech. And this is the kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in. It's not just another form of oppression. It's not an oppressive kingdom. This is about liberation from oppression. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather 
with me scatters. And then we get verses 24 to 26, which seems a bit of a strange digression. Jesus starts teaching about what happens uh, when an impure spirit is, is cast out of someone. Now, it seems like a very tenuous link to what he's been talking about. There's a man who's been freed from demonic oppression. And why is Jesus talking about this now? What has this got to do with the wider message that he's sharing? How does this relate to this response of the people who are saying that he's in league with Beelzebul? Let's dig just a a little deeper uh, and focus in then uh, on these verses and how they link together. So verse 24, Jesus says that someone who's been liberated from demonic oppression, they might find themselves at a future point in a worse state. They might be enslaved again. Because if an intruder has been chased off the property, but that property remains vacant and there's no one on guard, then they're going to come back. And they're going to come back with others. Sorry. So you don't simply need the stronger man to free you. You need the stronger man to keep you free. Now, let's just translate this into a movie scenario for a second. Think of some sort of a a spy thriller film, maybe kind of like a Mission Impossible type thing. And you've just been rescued from the evil clutches of some dictator of some world syndicate of evil schemes. Uh, And you've been freed from their clutches. And the person who's rescued you now says to you that it's not safe for you here in this town where you used to live. It's not safe for you in this country because they're going to come after you. This has hurt them. They're out for revenge. But come away with us. We'll, We'll take you to a new place, a safe place. We'll give you a new identity. And you'll be free from this. And as you're there, you're packing your bag, you're getting ready to go. A local copper turns up and says to you, what are you doing? You you, you don't want to go with with those guys. Because that guy's a double agent. And he's in the pay of this evil overlord. And if you go with them, it's just a trap, it's a setup. they, They will hand you over and you will be killed. Now, if that's a movie scenario, who's the real double agent in that situation? Now, who is the person who is really uh, in the pay of the bad guys? Is it the one who rescued you? Or is it the one who's saying, actually, you need to stay exactly where you are. Don't don't go away with them. Don't go away to this place of so-called safety. Stay as far away from that person who rescued you as possible. Who's really in the pay of the enemy? Now here Jesus has just saved a man from demonic oppression. And some of the onlookers say, that Jesus guy, he's in league with Beelzebul. He's he's in the pay of the devil. He is one of the bad guys. And what they're doing is they're setting that man up for that scenario that we read here in verses 24 to 26. They're basically saying, stay where you are. Stay as far away from Jesus as possible. He's not someone who can be trusted. So who is really in league 
with Satan? Who, who's really contributing to this work of oppression here? It's the people who are setting this man up for verses 24 to 26. It's not Jesus. Jesus isn't in league with Beelzebul. It's the people who oppose him. And so verse 23 here, it becomes the hinge that holds all this together. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And here's the thing, there are no sidelines. No one is merely a spectator. We're all contributing to one side or the other. Uh, Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast, and it was uh, interviewing Louise Perry. Louise Perry is a journalist. She's an author of the book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Uh, She's not a Christian, but like the historian Tom Holland, uh, if you've heard of him, she, along with him, recognizes that so much of what we we value uh, in our contemporary Western culture Uh, And these values and things like human rights, they have their origin uh, in Christian values. And that flourishing in life actually comes about through the teachings of Jesus. So she's not a follower of Christ, but she she recognizes so much that, that comes through our Christian heritage. And she describes in this podcast as our culture conducting a social experiment. And the social experiment is this. Can we continue to hold on to those Christian values as a society without holding on to Christ? And people debate whether that's possible. And here's the thing. You can turn off the engine on a car and the momentum may keep you going for a little while. You'll start to feel some of the sluggishness with power steering and brakes go. But that momentum might keep you going for a little while. And yet the reality is, as Jesus says here, there's something far worse than just stalling to a halt. That if you dismiss the stronger man, then the oppressors will return. And to cast off Christ to dismiss him, to encourage others to dismiss him, in reality is to partner with the forces of darkness. It's to partner with the oppressive forces. And, you know, it's not politically correct these days. In fact, it probably never has been to say that Jesus is the only way and there is no hope aside from him. But actually, that isn't an oppressive message. That is a liberating message. The oppressive message is to say it doesn't matter. Or to just dismiss Jesus. That is what leads to oppression. And yet in all this, we need to remember, as we considered a few weeks ago, we are not fighting a cultural war here. Because the battle's already won. Christ is already victorious. The end is certain and it's guaranteed. And even though things may seem to go, uh, and they may well go from bad to worse, the final result is certain and secure because of Jesus' resurrection. And so in all this, we shouldn't be responding out of fear. As you know, I've got to stop the world just spiraling out of control because it's going to, to negatively impact me and everyone else. 
We're not to respond out of fear. The end is certain, but we are to be faithful. And faithful with his message that Jesus is the only hope for the world. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no sideline. No one is simply a spectator. So the question is, whose side are you on? Are you for the light? But it's not simply about being supportive of Jesus. It's about sharing in Jesus' life. So we come now to our second question. Are you full of light? Have a look at verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and who obey it. So listening to Jesus' response, uh, to this response about people claiming that he's in league with Satan, this woman basically shouts out, Jesus, I think you're awesome. But she, uh, she does it in kind of the traditional manner of the day. In many ways, this is quite a brave thing that she's doing. She's saying, Jesus, I'm for you. And this traditional manner of the day by saying, like, how lucky is your family to have you? How happy must your mother be to have been given you as a gift? Such a privilege that she has. And Jesus responds not by rebuking this woman, but by teaching her and all who are listening, by inviting them in. And Jesus says this this blessed state, this, this state of happiness, this state of privilege is not just for a privileged few. That that you can all be part of Jesus' family. And Jesus here, he calls her, he calls the crowd to participate. To not be mere observers. But to come in and to share uh, in that life. And so he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now here is just observers, but to hear and obey it and and to share uh, in this blessing. And actually that was... Mary's response, as we go back to chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel appeared to her. To hear the word of God and obey it means to participate. To participate in this life of Christ. And this is what Jesus goes on to teach in the verses that follow. So in verse 29, as the crowd increased, Jesus gives this call to respond. Calls them to hear and to obey that they may share in this good life. And here Jesus is addressing that request in verse 16, that request for a sign. And then Jesus starts teaching about a a lamp uh, and eyes, which again seems like a a slight strange digression, but all this is linked together. So that word uh, in verse 34 about uh, eyes being unhealthy, that description of unhealthy eyes, is the same term that is used in verse 29 to speak of a wicked generation. That's where the link. You have bad eyes, bad eyes that don't let in light, a bad generation that doesn't respond to Jesus. And Jesus ties us all together. Uh, I went for an eye test uh, last week. 
Um, the week before now, isn't it? And uh, it's, it's a lot more technologically advanced these days, isn't it? When you go in, no longer do they screw those glasses. Do you remember when they screw those glasses to your face? It's like bolts everywhere. And they dropped in the different lenses and you had hands coming over saying one or two, one or two. Like now, well certainly where I went, it's like looking through these VR goggles. You just sit through uh, and the machine automatically changes everything for you. So the lens is just slotting and you, you can't see anything. You just sit there and you're looking at the screen. It's, it's now projected. So it's not up on the wall when you go in. So you can't walk in and like, have a sneaky peek and go F, J, K, right. Yeah. Did anyone do that? As though you're going to win a prize if you get it right. They're there to test our eyes. You can't do that. It's projected and it's just random. They'll keep changing it constantly. The thing is, it's an eye test. It's not a projector test. It would be a weird thing if you go in for your eye test with your clipboard, and then when they start putting the colors up, and no, is, is the red brighter with one or with two? With one or with two? And you're like, I think you need to turn up the brightness of the projector. Um, and you need to work on the focus, because some of those letters are very blurry. That you're not there to test the projector. If you're sitting there and it's not very bright and the letters are a bit blurry, what does that mean? There's a problem with your eyes. You're not there as the projector inspector. And here Jesus responds to the people who are demanding a sign. And Jesus basically says to them, look, there's not a lack of clarity from God's side. There's not an issue with the projector. It's a lack of sight. A lack of reception. So as the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So we have the queen of the south. She comes to hear Solomon's wisdom. We have these Ninevites who respond to this message of Jonah. And do you see how these real-life examples, they parallel what Jesus has been talking about in verse 28, this need to hear the word of God and to obey it. This crowd has been asking, give us a sign. Jesus says, you don't need further signs. He's just driven out demonic forces. It's not further signs that you need. It is sight that you need. You don't need a brighter light. You need to receive the light. And so then verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. The light is not hidden. And God is not hiding from us. He's, he's not hiding his light. He's not trying to obscure things and make it difficult for us to see him. God's not holding back. He's not one who gives reluctantly, but we receive reluctantly. And then Jesus goes on in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. 
when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Now, what does that mean? Your eye is the lamp uh, of your body. This is somewhat of a tricky phrase. People try and grapple, what, well, how is it to be understood? Well, what's it mean, the eye to be the lamp of the body? Is, is the eye reflecting something that's internal, which was a, a Greco-Roman thought at the time? So is it reflecting? Does, does the eye reflect what's internal? Or does the eye receive something that's external, which actually is a scientific way we think of eyes anyway, isn't it? They, they receive the light. They don't shine light out. Light comes in. Uh, so this is kind of say, are your eyes, are they a window to your soul? So you see what's in there. Or are they a window for the soul to let something in? Is this about reflecting something internal coming out? Is it about receiving something external coming in? And this is one of the things that scholars love to debate. Uh, comparing, you know, what was the Greco-Roman thought uh, at the time. I think we should understand this as the eyes letting light in. Not simply because, well, not because that's the way that we understand eyes to work now. But actually, when, we, when we're looking at, at Scripture, we want to understand it, not from just a Greco-Roman worldview, but the worldview of Scripture. Jesus is Jewish. Now, he's teaching Jewish people. Uh, and what is, what is the view of Scripture on this? And if we go back to Genesis, if we go back to the beginning. You know, when are eyes first mentioned? And often in Scripture, sometimes when something's first mentioned, that, that's a bit like a definition statement that's, that's given to us. When eyes are first mentioned in Genesis, it's this whole image of, of seeing and taking in. Eyes being opened or seeing something that is desirable to the eye. And it's, it's this receiving, taking something in. So it's just as a lamp then brings light to a room, so the eyes bring light to the body. It's a way of, of receiving things. So we take that all together. In verse 33, we've got this light that is external to us, something that isn't covered over. It's intended to give light. Now a good eye... It receives the light, and that which is external becomes internal. A bad eye does not receive the light. The external light remains light, but internally there is darkness. See to it, then, Jesus says, that the light within you is not darkness. So how do we do that? That's Jesus' application. If that's the command, see to it. How do we see to it? Well, in the context of what Jesus has just said, what do we need? We need a healthy eye. And this links back to what Jesus has been teaching about the queen of the south uh, and the people of Nineveh. So the queen of the south, she sought the light of Solomon's wisdom. The Ninevites, they received, they responded to the light of Jonah's message. And Jesus says, and now someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is not just simply a messenger of the light. He is the light himself. 
And so the crucial question for the crowd, for us, the way we participate is how do we respond to Jesus? And that is what influences whether we're going to be full of light or full of darkness. We're not to be mere observers of the light. God's purpose is that we share in the light. So verse 36, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. The internal light to shine as brightly as the external light, fully reflecting who God is. Full sharing, full participation. And this has always been God's purpose. To have a people in his own image who fully share in his joy, who fully share in his life. Now we can't create the light within us. And other religions, other philosophies in the world work on seeking to try to create that light or to change and to transform that light within us. We can't do that because we are dependent beings. And for us to try and work some light up within us, it's setting ourselves up for a fall. We're either going to be greatly discouraged or delusional and then feel puffed up that we've done well. Jesus begins where everyone tries to get to. That he shines his light. He is the light. He provides the light. That's why he died on the cross for our sins, why he rose for our justification, why he's poured out the Spirit, that we might be full participants in his life. See that the light in you is not darkness. And because we're dependent beings, that means don't, don't hold back on Jesus. You know what we so often do, don't we? That we, we easily embrace this lie that Jesus is the bad guy. That somehow he's in league with Beelzebul. He, he's in league with the oppressor. And to follow Jesus and to go his way is going to lead to oppression and ruin. As we see in this passage, it's those lies, it's those voices that mouth those lies. That's what's in league with the oppressor. Jesus invites us to the good life, and the good life is sharing in his life. And the Christian journey, the Christian life, it is an ongoing journey of repentance and faith. This isn't something that just happens once And as we go on in our Christian walk, we will probably discover areas of our lives where, without wanting to mix metaphors so much, our eyes are unhealthy in those moments. There are areas where it's like we try to keep the light of Christ out. I've found it in my life, uh, maybe you have it in yours. You get to a certain stage and you look back and you think, I didn't even realize that was an issue until now. That I'm trying to block this thing. In those moments, how do we respond to Jesus? Well, we see the truth of who he is. That he's not the oppressor. That he's the one who liberates. The one who lovingly invites us into 
participate. And when we consider what he has done to rescue us, see that he's not there for our harm. And even when he calls us to things that are difficult, that are not easy, that seem contrary to the way that we would go, it's because he's good. And he's calling us to something beautiful, to this privileged participation, to share in the fullness of his joy, the fullness of his love and light and life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your great goodness, your great kindness towards us. Lord, that you, you created us, you, you knit us together in our mother's womb, not because you had any necessity, not because you, you needed slaves to work for you, but because out of the abundance and the overflow of your love that you, you've created us, you've designed us to share in that life. Lord, and even when we've run from that, Lord, that you reach out to us Lord, through your Son, your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us into uh, that, that family life, the life of the Trinity. Lord, that we may share in the love and the joy and the delight of all, Lord, that you are. That we pray that we would would have a greater revelation of your goodness and your kindness. And in those times where we, we face that tension, that where following Christ seems difficult and, and costly and maybe even sometimes not even desirable, or that we would see what it is that you call us to. Those true life, a full t- participation with you, Lord, you, the author of life, the one in whom there is life. Lord, indeed, this is, this is no sacrifice Lord, when you call us to give uh, our lives to Christ. Because what we gain is, is beyond our comprehension. What, what, what is lost is just not worth comparing to Lord, what you call us to and what you give us in Christ. So enable us, Lord, to see that and to encourage one another, Lord, with that truth. To follow Christ, Lord, all our days. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.